Skinamarink. Skinky McKink. Skinamarink. Skinamarink. Hello, and welcome to episode three of the Last of the Moon podcast. I'm Bryce McCracken. I'm Skinky. I'm Kinky. And today we will be talking about the film Skinamarink. I'm actually Brett Redshaw. I am Wife Van Dyke. I fooled you. I know that I got. we got you. <laughs> uh, Skinamarink is Kyle Edward Bell's uh, first ever uh, feature film. It is a take on analog horror. In it, it's full, a cast of four total people, uh, two children and their parents. And as the parents disappear... Uh, the children realize that they're trapped in the house with something, something of which they don't know what, as walls and windows continually disappear. They recede to the comfort of their living room, and from there, terror unfolds as everything they know is flipped on its head. Uh, so if this podcast sounds a little bit different than usual, that's because we have leveled up just a little bit. Uh, we were previously working on just one microphone sitting knee to knee, we're no less crowded now, but we at least have a second microphone. So I'm on a microphone by myself, and my lovely friends Brett and Wyatt are sharing one. We're still on this goofy little cards table, uh, and there is not a square inch that's visible. We have audio interfaces, laptops, cords, multiple lights so that we look pretty, and that's the next big update. In theory, we should have some video to go along with this episode. Keep an eye out on our socials for that. Not only are we good at talking about movies, we're all really pretty. We look so good right now. Debatably. Debatably. Bryce took out a personal loan in order to make any of this happen. And I told him that the podcast business wasn't that lucrative to start, but he just, he took it straight to the bank. I couldn't get him to stop. I've dropped $14,000 on this podcast already. It's, Which is... It's frankly embarrassing. Coincidentally, only $1,000 less than it takes to make, I'll say it, the best horror movie I've ever seen. That's a take. It's very bold. We'll get into that. Uh, but yeah, like Wyatt said, this movie was made with just $15,000. Pretty impressive, frankly, with the budget that they had. It's not surprising that it's a low-budget movie. It's all filmed in one house. In fact, it was the house that the director grew up in. It was his childhood home in Canada. So that's pretty exciting. I saw an interview with him where he talked about how his goal was to make it feel sort of adolescent and he had no trouble tapping into that because it was literally the location of all of his adolescence, which I thought came through pretty clearly um, and lent itself very well to a very specific niche of horror that I've not really experienced before. If you've ever thought about like recapturing all of the fear of waking up from a childhood nightmare and then expanding that to about an hour and a half long experience the movie that encompasses that exact feeling. Uh, it leaves you completely uneasy from start to finish. Uh, shots linger for a really long time as you're kind of forced to think that something is in this like gritty darkness. Roughly 20 minutes into the movie from that point on, uh, I think I was white knuckling the seats. Uh, this dude was terrified. Breathed maybe four to five times like throughout the whole movie. My favorite part of this viewing experience was sitting to Wyatt's left directly next to him and just watching this boy whimper the entire duration of the film hands over his face laughing in fear occasional yells it was a great time at one point my partner leaned over to me and said is he laughing and i said i think he might be crying he's laughing to cover the tears <laughs> it was this boy is terrified 
It was genuinely the most scary. Like, I'm by no means a horror movie watcher consistently, uh, which is funny because I was the one who has been hammering the the need to watch Skinnamarink Home uh, since I saw a TikTok about this movie like a month and a half ago. So I felt like I had to really power through it. And I tried my best and my best looked like near tears, uh, an inability to eat Reese's Pieces because my hands were too shaky to Damn. go in the bag. You had Reese's? I didn't even know. <laughs> I didn't get any of that. Um, but You did have ice because I could hear you from Fred across the ice. theater chomping on your ice. <laughs> Which I honestly focused on on more than one occasion because the sound design, as we'll get into in this movie, is so phenomenal that I could tune out because I just listened to Brett munching crunch on ice. And for a little bit, I'd feel safer. Brett, did you think this movie was scary? I couldn't even really focus. I was just chewing ice that whole time. It was the main attraction of the whole thing. No, I did think that it was pretty scary. Um, I described it as unnerving more than scary, which I think is probably what they were shooting for. So I don't think they'd be upset about that analysis at all, uh, the makers of this film. Uh, Wyatt had a comparison for the movie. My own comparison is that it is akin to... Do you guys remember those, like scary games that usually circled the internet on like that uh, they would play on twitch and stuff well specifically i always saw these in like chain emails that you would you would open it and it was like a game that you'd play for two or three seconds or like a serene video and then the biggest jump scare of your life would jump on your screen yourself and then you know like clip your speakers and it'd be super loud yeah absolutely pissing yourself the movie was like a little more than an hour and a half of you playing one of those games the entire time. Like, it's not unknown to you that something is going to happen if you're a little bit more experienced, but it doesn't make it less scary. Mm-hmm. It's it's pretty unnerving. Uh, there's a word for that concept. Uh, it's called analog horror. It's credited uh, to be invented during the Mandela Catalog YouTube series. I personally haven't seen it. I watched like 30 seconds of one video, was deeply unsettled. Uh, it centers around cryptic messages, grainy shots that look to be dated in their uh, film style. And this film takes place in 1995, right? 1995. So that, yeah. that makes sense. This is, I believe, the first full venture of this type of, it's like a found footage adjacent sort of film. Uh, and it's the first full venture into that. Other credited instances of this concept existing uh like the final scene of the blair witch project in the late 90s well that whole movie uh yeah the, the, just like the specific kind of grit to the film but um either way i loved it it was a new take uh something that i personally haven't seen before uh and i thought it was done really well i like wyatt i'm not a horror movie fanatic i haven't seen a whole lot of them they don't really scratch an itch for me in many ways and also i, I will say i didn't I didn't know much about this movie going in at all, except a lot of people have said it was very scary. So the podcast is probably going to be Bryce and Wyatt saying a lot of things about the movie that they researched and me going, oh. And that's okay. We need need an audience surrogate. One thing that I thought that was really cool about this movie, so like Wyatt said at the top of the podcast, this is Kyle Edward Ball's first feature film that he has made, but that is not to say that he has no experience in this lane. He had a YouTube channel in which the vast majority of the content that he was putting out, he would take comments that viewers of his channel were leaving, and he would sort of film the nightmares that they were having. 
So this project, Skinnamarink, was sort of an amalgamation of all of the nightmares that he had already put to film on his YouTube channel. Uh, I've not actually dove into any of that yet, but I did enjoy this enough that I think it would be worth checking out probably. Kyle Edward Bell, uh, Ball, rather, Kyle Edward Ball, did uh, an interview with RogerEbert.com, and he described the, uh, the internet as his co-director in this film. And I think that's a really interesting concept about how the type of media we consume kind of shapes the next style of movie you see. Uh, you can see non-traditional elements of film that are used frequently. And it's interesting to watch is how like short-form videos like YouTube have shaped long-form content like movies. It's pretty fascinating to me that anecdote about nightmares being included, visualized on the screen for the movie, because I'm just now learning that fact as you were telling it to me. While I was watching the movie... A lot of the surrealism of how the film was being directed reminded me, not of any specific nightmare, but, oh, this feels like a nightmarish sequence. Specifically, that, like Wyatt said, one that you would have as a child. Exactly. And I, I think that a lot of the movie is, especially when it is from the perspective of a child, is to make you feel childish. And I think that it does that exceptionally mm -hmm. well for a myriad of reasons. But uh, if that's their intention, and I think that it is, they did a very good job at doing that. And that, that leads me to one of the first things that I noticed in this movie, and that was how it was shot. This was one of the most unique, if not the most uniquely shot horror movies I've ever seen. Um, Second that. There is... Genuinely not a single thing in this movie that is portrayed by the camera accurately. Every single shot is, if one action or one object is the center of a frame, or in classic cinematography technique would be the center of the frame, For the camera is just slightly skewed to the side or to the top. And a lot of this movie is shot from the point of view of the child character. So the camera is really, really low to the ground in a way that I don't think I've ever noticed would make me uncomfortable. Purely by the nature of it being at a weird angle, I was a little bit unnerved at points just because I was seeing things in a way that I haven't seen since I was five years old. I don't know if you guys felt similarly about that. I For sure. I mean... First off, the perspective of the child who knows nothing about what's going on around them uh, translates well to the viewer and how little context you're given. Mm -hmm. uh, at no point do you see more than half of a character's face. Uh, so you're just stuck in this complete depth of lack of understanding. And also what I thought was done well is either prolong static shots and in that time you'd kind of second guess everything you're looking at and you're hyper analyzing everything that's on the screen because if it's there it must be important if you're focusing on it this long it must be important uh, if the camera did move it was exceptionally slow and painstaking even in the point of view shots where you'd think hey maybe this kid should be looking around rapidly the camera just takes its time and you're so desperate to you just want please turn like i need to see what's there and the camera just makes you wait as it slowly turns. And what's even more agonizing is in those moments you feel like you're about to have the absolute crap scared out of you once the camera turns. In traditional horror movie fashion, there should be something there. But 
on maybe four occasions that's the case, you're just drawn out continuously with this cold sweat feeling as you know something's around the corner, but it's not there and it doesn't show up. So you're just completely out of sorts, uh, at least I was throughout the whole movie. Feels like a long drunk walk home for me <laughs> where I'm not really sure what's around the bend, but God, I got to get through it. You just got to push. <laughs> there are, uh, like Wyatt said, a lot of long exaggerated still shots or slightly moving shots. And what that does for me at least is make movement itself terrifying because mm -hmm. it happens so infrequently in the movie. And usually when it does happen, it doesn't indicate something good. Yep. It does make you hyper analyze the screen. You're thinking about every single pixel that you're seeing and whenever something moves ever so slightly, it is so exciting. And it is a long, arduous, drawn-out process that was very unique. Nothing in this movie is rushed. Every single thing is drawn out. The, the intro of this movie is literally just slow pans to familiarize the audience with the environment that you're about to spend the next hour and a half with. And it started off, I was thinking oh, this is a unique way to start the movie. Like, everything is shot strangely. Everything's a little bit distorted. This is a little bit weird. And then by the time that dialogue started happening, maybe seven or eight minutes into the movie, and the way that it was shot didn't change, I was like, oh, this is just going to be the movie. I hope they use this well. And then I feel like they did. I was really terrified in that moment because I kind of knew that this was going to be unique in its film style going in. And then it kind of stuck around and was pretty slow off the bat. And I was terrified I'd be made fun of on the car ride home for suggesting just an awful movie. But <laughs> shout out to the director. He paid off my my hopes and dreams well, you know? The slowness of the entire movie, and like Bryce said, it is, and I think Wyatt mentioned this as well, that in the beginning of the movie, it is particularly slow and drawn out. And I think that there's something to be said about how it requires the audience to be patient with the film that's going to be rolled out in front of you. Um, because even myself at times I was thinking like, man, I, this is a very strong take on how they should be doing this movie. They're going to have to make it pay off in some sort of way and without getting into an unnecessary amount of specifics they definitely do the the style that they take with it pays off for you the audience if you can ride the ride all the way through patience is a virtue baby uh i also am curious your thoughts on uh the use of just gritting the crap out of the film uh there's considerable amount of fuzz on the screen what'd you guys think about that uh so i think the film grading as well as the lighting lead to an effect that Wyatt you were talking about earlier with the way you're, you're just forced to stare at things even if you're not sure that there's anything actually there this is one of the I want to say better lit films that I've ever seen but it's almost not lit at all which I think to its credit helps a lot like Wyatt was saying earlier there are so many scenes where there's only one tiny little source of light in the whole shot, whether that's a singular nightlight in the hall or a TV that's on there, there's very little light. 
And there are even some scenes where, as somebody who understands a bit about film lighting, I could tell they have a light behind the camera, but it is so dim, and this scene is so darkly lit, it almost recreates the feeling of being in a pitch black room where the only source of light is how well your eyes have adjusted to the darkness. I thought that it used that very effectively, but specifically there are some some shots where, for example, you're looking in a doorway and you can't even see through the doorway or you can't see at the top of the stairs and the camera just holds there on the darkness. And because the film is graded in such a way, like you said, Wyatt, there's so much movement that is not even physical movement. It's just the camera is unable to even capture what's going on that you're just constantly staring into the darkness, trying to find something that isn't even there. And it, it's very unnerving. That was one of the things that I found myself doing frequently. If you'd have these shots of prolonged darkness, you have to be looking for something. And so your mind's playing tricks on you at that point. And you're looking at stuff thinking, is that a face? Is that the Mr. Skinnamarink himself? Mm -hmm. If that's Uh, his name. If that's his name. We're not even sure. Um, But uh, the whole time, I mean, it's just an added layer of absolute terror. Yeah, I was going to bring that up as well. The way that the movie handles darkness. If anything that I I take from the movie that's going to have lasting power with just my thoughts about, you know, how it was directed at all, it's going to be how they handle darkness. Specifically, the illusion of movement through the darkness. And that also speaks to feeling childlike, at least to me it does. Totally. Because darkness has this really specific way of playing tricks on your mind visually and it's something that i experienced probably more as a child i assume that many people feel a similar way and i will never ever get over how the movie captured that feeling of darkness playing tricks on you visually through movement that uh, is there or is not there i don't know how they actually made that effect happen if it is exclusively through the filmy grading of the uh, of the cameras or if they did some other kind of practical effect to specifically draw your eyes to some kind of movement that I is think happening. it's likely a combination of both I th- feel the same way regardless it was amazing very it was, effective it was an effect that sat very unnervingly with me and I, it was done to perfection in my mind it's I can, completely subtle I cannot reiterate enough how much this movie feels like the exact emotion of waking up at the age of five in the middle of the night uh, from a nightmare in which you can't run fast enough from something. And it's that exact feeling of like waking up and trying to judge whether or not running to your parents' bed uh, is a safe thing you can do. Or if there's something in that darkness, that is the exact feeling you feel for 90 whole minutes. Just props again. As a kid, every single time I threw up, you know, in the middle of the night. (laughs) And I saw something out of the corner of the room, and I had to go tell my mom just like that. All right, so we're going to get into some plot discussion. There's not a whole lot of plot to this movie, but if you don't want to be spoiled for the movie Skinnamarink, go ahead, check it out. It's playing pretty limitedly right now. I believe it is out on the, sh- I believe it is out on the streaming service Shutter. Uh, that's a horror movie exclusive streaming service. It's only a few bucks a month. Uh, There's some pretty good stuff on there, so I highly recommend checking it out. We do 
ultimately recommend Skinnamarink if you're into horror movies. We'll talk more at the end of this podcast about who specifically would like this, but if what you're hearing so far sounds like something you might enjoy, go ahead, check it out, and rejoin us for the rest of this conversation. All right. So, like I said earlier, this movie opens with just a lot of establishing shots of the house that the movie takes place in, and it's going to be really difficult to talk about the plot to this movie, because if you've reached this point in the podcast and you've seen the movie... There's not a whole lot that happens. So I'm honestly going to forego sort of a standard let's follow the plot beats methodology to this episode. I'm kind of just curious, what do you guys think this means? Like what what happened? Uh, I assume... Do you even, sorry, do you even have theories about what happened? I assume, I mean, based on... There's, there's a line in there in which uh, one of the children, I believe it's the boy asks who we'll refer to as Mr. Skinnamarink. The whole room had just been out of sorts and he reorganizes it. And the boy asks him, how did you do that? And he said he's capable of anything. Uh, So I assume that this is a, like a demon situation, I'd guess, like a, a ghost paranormal type energy. I am guessing that by the end of this movie, no one in the house is alive. Uh, I don't really have a say for what happens with the parents. I'm guessing possession because they make a few appearances in the movie. Yeah, it appears that they're still around. Boy, are they unsettling. But yeah, I'm guessing good old case of possession. Yeah, don't like them very much. They don't have eyes or mouths. Uh, not really nice. Well, we don't see the parents' faces. We see the mom's face. I swear. No, we see the sister's face. I also thought that was the mom. No, it was the sister because Mr. Skinnamarink says, I had to take your sister's mouth because she wouldn't do what she was told. That came after. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that came after. Correct. But is it like a... He mentions it after the fact because he's like explaining Mm. why her mouth is gone. Which is also... It's also the sister's voice right before we see faceless sister talking about how she's scared and needs help. Like that's faceless not the sister mo- was my band in high school. <laughs> faceless sister was the scene in this movie in which I almost peed my pants quite literally. I'm probably not the best one to ask about the deeper meanings of the movie because I'm, I'm not great naturally at detecting subtext. The best that I can come up with is early on in the movie Kevin, who was the boy, he falls down the stairs. And mm, I'm glad you mentioned head. this. I was going to bring it up. I, I think that that could not have been mentioned for no reason. And I wouldn't be surprised if from uh, a writing perspective, it has uh, a major play in the movie, such as Kevin hit his head and developed some kind of mental illness that is making him see demonic uh, sights. Something along those lines, I think, is Maybe he's in a coma. Concussions are no joke. I mean, if you're clever enough. (laughs) Every person in the NFL has experienced this at some point or another. Oh, man, not Tua. Oh, my poor boy. (laughs) Tua Tagovailoa is living this right now, actually. Four concussions in one season. That dude's got three Mr. Skinnamarink standing around his bed. Mike McDaniel's over his bed going, Sleep. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, so. Oh, that's why he was playing with the Legos. We all know that Mike McDaniel's loves, he Legos. loves Legos. It's all coming together. It's all coming together. Good job, Brett. This is why we have you on this show. Combo movie review Miami Dolphins fan blog. Mm-hmm. I have one friend and one friend alone. John, if you're listening, eat this up, baby. Yeah. To be clear, his one friend in life, it's all he has. It's my only friend. John, I appreciate you. And your your love for the Miami Dolphins. Bryce, what do you think about the plot? Uh, so I think it does something very well, and that is I think it can be interpreted in multiple different ways. I think if you're looking for a literal what the heck is happening, it's impossible to say exactly what's happening because everything is so surreal. But if you're looking for an explanation, I think... You're absolutely right. That line at the beginning could be given as an explanation. The dad is still around at that point. I think you might have to help me out with the way that the events or the order of events here. But I believe Kevin, that's the boy, goes out and is sort of like scared in the hallway. And then he yells and then it cuts. And then we get a conversation of the dad on the phone talking to someone. I thought maybe it was his mom, but I think the mom, at least for the rest of the movie, is there. We don't see her yet at that point in the movie. So the dad on the phone is talking to someone and tells them, hey, Kevin hit his head. We didn't have to give him stitches or anything, but yeah, you hit his head. I think if you're looking for a literal definition of what's happening in this movie, it could be interpreted, like Brett said, that everything is a figment of Kevin's imagination. I don't personally like that explanation only because I think this movie is doing something a lot more creative than that. It's sort of a a non-answer to what a film means. I'm a big Harry Potter fan and I've heard a theory that all of this is just inside Harry's head as he's home under the cupboard or under the stairs because he's creating this imaginary world in which he's not a loser. I don't like that explanation. I think it kind of diminishes from the value of what the story is telling you. And I think I very much feel that here. I I would much rather explore the more surreal elements that the movie is putting on display. I mean, that concept of like something that Kevin dreams up after he's got bumped on the nog does kind of play in line with the, the theory of this being just one elongated childhood nightmare. So there's, there's fuel for that fire. For I sure. also hope it's not the case. It's a cop out of rationale, but I mean, it's potential. So the other side of that coin, which is more the surreal explanation, I think we really touched on that pretty well already, that it's sort of this embodiment of childhood nightmare and childhood horror and adolescent fear, sort of what a child would do in a scenario, or at least for the the majority of the film, what two children would do if they were left at home without the help of their parents. That concept alone is already scary. And then you add Mr. Skinnamarink in the mix and it's frankly terrifying. Uh, Made even scarier by the really adorable relationship between the two, uh, the two children of the house. There's limited dialogue in this movie, like lines and especially full scale conversations are few and far between, but there's a few instances in which the the children are talking to each other including like essentially tucking each other in at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very it's cute. Really cute. And it's the only time that you say, oh, in this movie and you feel worse when they go through a gauntlet of nightmares. Actual afterwards. hell. Yeah. Not dissimilar to our current living situation, tucking each other in and then 
hell breaking loose. It's just our cat running rampant through the house. <laughs> Paige, if you're listening to this, we love you. Uh, Some of us do. <laughs> me making a joke about them going through actual hell, I think, made me made me remember a specific shot from the movie that I thought was interesting. So throughout, it establishes pretty early on that maybe things are not the way that they necessarily appear. Door frames will vanish and then reappear at certain times. But there's one shot in particular that shows the house from a super far distance. And you can see there's a frame to each window. There's no hole there, nor is there even a door. Like this is just the most rudimentary outline of a house and it's way in the distance in just this void and i'm thinking maybe it's a way of like showing they're in some kind of purgatory or hellscape or nothingness regardless no matter where they are it's really terrifying that despite these children's best efforts to contact the outside world for help this movie is showing they're absolutely screwed there's no help like they're by themselves yeah i thought that as well that there are some relations here to what an actual hellscape could potentially be um i didn't have a lot of detailed thoughts about that other than i hope it's not like this and i won't (laughs) have to be there ever (laughs) yeah and specifically kevin but these kids are stuck there for a while at at one point near the end of the movie it just shows 500 some days uh, and it's, this poor kid has been there for a very long time, just living the same miserable existence. And it's incredibly like distraught and sad, frankly, that this poor helpless kid just cannot do anything but live in Mr. Skinnermering's hellscape that he's established for him just because it's fun for him, I guess. And if you've seen the movie, as you know, this does not come out with a happy ending. I've never seen a movie that centers children uh, end on just a haunting note. So there's no escape from this bad boy. You're with Skinnamarink forever until he puts a knife in your eye, I guess. And let, let's talk about the, how the movie ends. So do we want to talk about the ending right now? Is, uh, there, any, is there anything else? Well, you I only, get into? only because it's relevant. Okay. Um, the the movie ends with this super drawn out, just dark image, and. In the film grain, if you look closely, you can just barely make out the shape of a human face, and it just holds there. And you can hear Kevin ask, what is your name? I believe that's the question he asks, right? What's your name? Yeah. And we don't get an answer. And that's probably a lot more scarifying. Scarifying? I just made that word up. That's probably a lot more scarifying than had he given, like, this big... I am Skinnamarink drop. Assuming that Skinnamarink's name in the first place. We don't know, even know. Right after Kevin asks, what is your name twice? Like you said, he does not get an answer. And then ending card, the end, pops up on screen. I think it's entirely possible that Skinnamarink, or the antagonist of this film, does not have a name, A, or B, could only be known as like the end of all things mm. and that might be what they were trying to portray there or it's just called skin and it's not that deep uh also worth noting i believe it was brett's partner that mentioned this after the movie uh skin in itself is a nursery rhyme um 
So that's a thing worth noting. Maybe Skinnamarink is just the concept of the the rhymes that repeatedly play or the the old cartoons that play uh, throughout the movie that serve as the only soundtrack uh, for this film. Zero score. Uh, but uh, Skinnamarink a doo doo, as they say in the line which I think is a hilarious twist uh, from a Coco Melon song <laughs> to something that will plague my nightmares for weeks to come. Uh, I'm just looking up some anecdotal information here about skid a I- I'm seeing results for skid a a lot, but yes, why it's right. Uh, the chorus of this rhyme says, skiddy marink a dink a boomp, Skitty Marinka do oh, means oh, I love spittin'. you. He's spitting. Not not the feeling that our version of Skinny Marink invoked, I would say. I felt no love leaving this movie. No, he's not a very nice man. Uh, I want to propose a theory to you boys. I do. Can I be best man? I'm just going to move on. <laughs> uh, I'm going to propose a theory to you. Are you ready for this? I'm certainly ready. I am Skinnamarink. You yeah. ready for this? I've got, I've got, I've got some some good evidence here. We both have a very low voice. Similarity number one. We both love interior design, but don't really know what we're doing. Our boy Skinny just be throwing stuff on the walls or on the ceiling and calling it a day, but I don't know much better. Third really likes to be listened to. Mm-hmm. I don't like when people don't do what I ask them to do. I might have to take off your face if you don't produce this podcast episode in time. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. It's just who I am. And fourth, we're both ambiguous demonic beings. Yeah, I mean, I've seen you take out enough eyes slash faces for the two of us that uh, I don't think that it's really hard to debate at this point. I mean, I can't rule it out. Uh, I've never seen you or Skinnamarink in the same room. Exactly. So it could be a Spider-Man situation. Uh, I buy it. Mashup movie. Hypothetically, what if halfway through the Skinnamarink film, Santa Claus from Violent Night pops through the door, and now it's Violent Night Santa Claus v. Skinnamarink. I would watch that probably every minute of every day for the rest of my life. I'd be pretty pissed if we don't watch Violent Night one more time and then make a pot about it. I have no desire to watch that movie I ever have again. only desire to watch it again and again and again. Maybe if we're very inebriated, <laughs> we'll do a live stream. Oh, I was the first time, and it made it a lot better. <laughs> so one thing I want to highlight that I really did not like about this movie was I, I'm baffled to say, or I'm baffled to hear Wyatt loved the sound editing for this movie. I thought it was very bad. The focus on noise is such that, I mean, it might just be me. I'm scared of everything in this movie, but this had me jumping when light switches were flicked. The one thing I would say that I didn't like about the uh, the sound design is there's this like repeat track that whenever anything disappeared played, and it was this like very wonky Shout out the disappearing toilet. Um, but, I actually thought that was kind of fun. <laughs> but um, I thought that it captured the the feeling of the movie so well. I think this movie would have been reasonably scary if I listened to it as like a sort of 
audiobook, essentially. Like, if I just put headphones on and covered my eyes, which I did for a good 25% of this movie, <laughs> um, I'd still be terrified. I think the voice of Skinnamarink was this distorted mess that, you know, if I ever talked to a demon, I'd think he'd sound like that. It was all whispers. Everything was in hushed tones. Um, when in the movie did decide to scare you, it scared you by grinding on some piano wire and just producing this ungodly screech. I don't know the technical aspects of sound design as much as Bryce probably does, and will I'm not an expert. Lay down uh, after I say my piece, but I think if there's one thing I loved about this movie, it was how the sound made everything scary and everything was set to the soundtrack of the childhood experience through cartoons. It was the highlight of the movie for me personally. I would, before you have your counterpoint, I would like to differentiate between sound design and audio mixing. They're different categories at the Oscars. They they are. They are different uh, for a very good reason because they serve completely different purposes. I would place myself somewhere between the two of you where I would say that the sound design wasn't great, uh, but the audio mixing was something that I enjoyed very thoroughly. It could be seen as technically bad because it wouldn't be how you would want to mix pretty much any other film with the um, loads of static whenever there was um, nothing happening or a complete isolating silence throughout a significant portion of the movie. But it was done in such a way that for me, the um, sound or lack thereof was used as a device to make me feel very discomforted pretty much throughout the entire movie. Whether there was a lot of noise, no noise, or a medium amount of noise, somehow they were able to make me on the edge of my seat pretty much the entire time. So that's what I liked about it. So one thing that I I did think it did effectively, and I think this is sort of why Wyatt liked it, I don't think there is a medium noise in this movie. Everything throughout the entire film is so quiet until we get to a jump scare, and then it's the loudest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. And I find that more frustrating than anything I've seen so many horror movies in the last five years, some very good, some very bad, some very in the middle. But at this point, I genuinely cannot remember the last time that I flinched more than like once or twice in a movie because I've gotten so good at reading a jump scare. Like you can just feel it when you've felt enough of them before the way that the audio quiets down right before this big loud noise and that was not something that I could do in this movie because the entire movie is so quiet so if you're someone like me who it's it's hard to startle uh, and you enjoy a jump scare if you find that that is something that actually makes a film scary in your eyes I think you'll like this movie the jump scares are really effective but did I think they were good jump scares from a compelling sense. No, I did not. They certainly made me flinch because they would go from the this dead silence to just this absolutely blaring scream noise that was distorted and strange. At times that were 
pretty unpredictable. Yes. The Fisher and Price it would, telephone screaming at you. It would come out of nowhere quite often, and I would jump. But that is something that really grinds my gears. Often, what in my opinion is, and I need to emphasize that this is just my opinion. A lot of people really enjoy jump scares. What in my opinion makes for a good jump scare is when something actually happens that is scary on the screen that this new loud bang or loud noise that can give me a visceral physical reaction it amplifies the fear that I would be seeing without this loud noise oftentimes in this movie it's just coming out of nowhere from this lingering shot it's just oh loud noise all of a sudden aren't you scared and that was very frustrating to me but Despite that big log rant, that is actually not what I felt <laughs> this movie did poorly with the sound. There are like four sounds in this whole movie. There is stepping, there's the TV, there are the voices, and there are those sound effects slash jump scares. And I just talked about those. The stepping noise that they used in this movie was so freaking goofy. They're walking on shag carpet, but because of the way that the movie is shot you're often reliant on hearing people move in order to know that they are moving. So they really like amplify the walking sounds. If you've ever walked on shag carpet, it is very, very quiet. And it sounds like they're walking through dry leaves on like a fall day. It was very obnoxious to me. And it's the same exact noise with every single step. It's like, Record with that. Record every, that. Record with that. every single that step, I was actually like so annoyed because it's like if you're walking down the hall, each step sounds similar, but it doesn't sound like they're using the same sound effect step for every step that you take. So that was obnoxious. Uh, on that, I looked it up because I was curious uh, about like the. I don't know if everybody's familiar with the concept of like Foley artists. Uh, they the did people, credit the Foley people. In yes, this movie. the Foley people they used in this movie are not Foley people. They went to the Shutterstock equivalent and just used free public domain uh, sounds. I didn't know that. I'm good at my job. Let me just say that. <laughs> uh, so this was, I mean, part of the shoestring budget. Um, but the fact that they just did this with like a online free database of sounds, I think is hilarious. I can see why Bryce takes issue with that. I think it's a credit to the ability of the people who used it. And again, know it that is, that's part of the sound design yeah. and not not the audio mixing and mastering. The Like Brett said, the mixing really lends itself to if jump scares are something that you find scary to making a very terrifying experience. So my last bit in this rant, the TV I thought was actually very cool. I really liked all the cartoons that they used. A lot of them even tied in with what was happening in the movie. And you can sort of hear it playing in the background of it almost every scene. I thought that that was really well done. My last bit that I could not stand was the voices. They are interesting. Skinnamarink's voice is terrifying. He talks like this most of the movie. Damn. Damn, he is Skinnamarink. That's I crazy. told you I'm Skinnamarink. Someone skin this morning. It's pretty creepy. But the movie uses subtitles. But they only use subtitles sometimes. I read an interview with the director of this movie where he talked about how in this world of analog horror, it's pretty common to use subtitles. I have no problem with that. I'm not a person that's opposed to subtitles. But he was basically like 
in this interview, yeah, I just decided to take it out sometimes because I thought their voices sounded cool. And that is not a good enough reasoning, in my opinion. It's like there are certain times where these voices are so distorted or so terrified that I cannot understand what they're saying. So I'm grateful for the subtitles. I like that. But then there are other times where I cannot understand a word that they're saying, and then there is no subtitle. And in some films, like often if in a a different movie, if somebody's talking in a different language and they don't show subtitles, I, as the viewer know, okay, the director does not want me to understand what they're saying here. I didn't exactly get that vibe. It was just like, I wish I knew what was happening right now. That was a bit obnoxious. And then there are other scenes where I could understand the character perfectly fine, and then they're still throwing subtitles on the screen anyways, which just distracts from my experience. It was frustrating. I know that there is a frustration that comes from the lack of intentionality there, I'm sure is like the overall point of how you feel with it. It was a lack of intentionality, and then also just it was distracting. I personally actually really liked it. Okay. And it's not something that I had thought about too much because it wasn't a focal point of the directing for me. Mm-hmm. But I remember in the theater thinking that I liked it a lot because it it was unpredictable for me in a movie that anchors on being unpredictable. And I because I couldn't get a grasp about the intentions of the director, it, it made me feel a little bit more wavered as I went along. So... I also experienced okay like why is there not a why is there not a subtitle here for this specific part am I supposed to hear it am I not supposed to hear it and if if there is no subtitle to the dialogue it, I was like all the more locked in and committed to to what was happening on screen and what my ears were perceiving which just made me even more immersed in mm-hmm. in the world yeah, it was yeah. the exact opposite experience for me, but I understand what you're saying. Like, I get that. I got to side with Brett on this one. Um, I just think that the the absence of context when voices were presented uh, led me to question, oh, my God, what's going on? Did I miss something important? Did the people sitting around me hear what was said? Do they know something I don't? I mean, I was already in a catatonic state, but I think it added to it. But, Bryce, I can certainly see your perspective why that would be frustrating and and removing from the overall experience. And I I can appreciate when something is ambiguous, but ambiguity is most effective when the characters are also experiencing that ambiguity, especially in a horror movie. And this is one where the primary character is experiencing so many unnatural things that all of this absurdity already lends itself to horror. So subtitles are something that the character's not experiencing. It's just this added layer of ambiguity that only I am experiencing. And I get why somebody might see that. And it just adds to the unnerving feeling that they're experiencing watching the movie. But for me personally, all I could think about was how I was getting pulled out of the story to think about how sometimes there are subtitles and sometimes there aren't. It was just very distracting to me. But I'm glad to hear that it didn't take away from you guys because Ultimately, I just like when we like movies, and for the most part, I did enjoy this movie, and it seems like you guys really enjoyed this movie, especially you, Wyatt. Uh, I mean, I loved it, which I both saw coming and also didn't see coming. I bet me coming on here and saying that 
I thoroughly enjoyed this movie is at least a little bit surprising to the both of you who just watched me go through all stages <laughs> of grief in real time. No, because I knew that you were wanting that to some degree. Yeah. I, I, I wanted this to be good, uh, and I think it delivered. It's not it's sort of biased on my part. I'm not one who gets invested in horror movies or ever seeks them out, but I think this is something that has staying power. I think if there was ever a formula for what a cult classic movie looks like, I think Skin and Rink will have a fan club like down the line because uh, it occupies a niche that, at least to this point, hasn't been filled. I'm really excited to see what uh, Kyle Edward Ball does, the director, uh, with a budget uh, in his next project. I think if this man can give me the most haunting hour and a half of my life I've ever had in a movie theater for $15,000. That's actually like zero dollars yeah, in the grand scheme of filmmaking. Remarkable. Um, if he can do that for that little a sum of money, if he gets millions of dollars to make something, uh, I think it'll like end up banned by the Republican Party for like <laughs> inciting the devil. But it's a career that now I'm excited to follow along for in a genre that I do not traditionally care about uh i will be talking about this movie for a while and would not be shocked if 12 months from now it ends up on the list that uh, we just made in our first episode i have a, a bold take here please i think that if this film had more budget and marketing power specifically behind it essentially to say that there were more butts in the seats and eyes viewing it I think that this movie would have the ability to be a new generation's paranormal activity. It got a lot of... Or a decade before that Blair Witch Project. Yeah, exactly. I felt that there were a lot of similar themes to paranormal activity, but besides that, I think that it is very terrifying and simultaneously entertaining to a, a general audience. And... I wish that a lot more people would have had the opportunity to go see this movie. I don't know how it's doing box office numbers-wise right it's now. It's hard to say because it's gotten such a limited spread-out release. It didn't have a standard like opening weekend. And the movie was also leaked on social media. Somebody got a copy of the movie and started posting it online. So a lot of people have actually seen this movie already and not paid for it, which... For a movie like this in particular, it almost adds to the the frightening aspects of it. If you're like, I found this niche movie on the internet. Um, but unfortunately, that might make it difficult if a lot of the people that would really enjoy this movie are finding it online illegally. It might really hurt the box office numbers. I couldn't even find box, box office numbers for this movie. I think that if a lot more people were able to go see it, it would have a lot more staying power. I think currently, if it's going to have long-form success, it's going to have to find a niche cult classic community through the film genre buffs. And I think that it has the ability to do that. It's just going to be a matter of time to say, is that going to happen or not? It's getting some love on the good old TikTok. Uh, that's where I heard about this first. Everything Everywhere All at Once sort of experienced a renaissance like that where it went through theaters once and then kept coming back because it kept generating social media trends. And while I don't think this will have anywhere near that sort of trajectory, I think a, a toned down version could happen where 
word might spread and it might not be so so successful in the movie uh, theaters themselves, but once it transitions to streaming and uh, Shutter hosts it, I think it might get a little bit more love and I sure hope it does. So I'm unfortunately going to have to disagree with you again. I think this movie will really, really struggle to have any kind of lasting impact. I think the average person that goes and sees a horror movie in theaters, a film like Megan, which we saw last week, I think the average person is going to see this movie, not really understand what's going on, think, I got scared by a few jump scares, and just be confused, because nothing plot-wise really happens in this movie. It's very ambiguous, and I think my ultimate takeaway from this movie and the reason why you ready for this i didn't really love this movie i i'm getting flipped off by wyatt right now both hands let it be known there's just nothing for me to latch on to i don't really think there's any staying power here it was really scary but other than just it being a unique thing that I had not seen before. It did some cool things. It had some cool moments. There's no reason to ever come back to this, at least in my own personal opinion. I, the characters, you don't even see their faces. There's no one to attach yourself to. There is no like theme. There's no message. It's just this terrifying experience that this one sort of fill in the blank child goes through and yes it's a terrifying time i might show this to somebody as like hey you might like this if you like this type of movie but even then like the average the average person that goes to the movies i think this movie is going to be too ambiguous and plotless for them to enjoy it this ties in perfectly with something i was thinking about uh throughout the movie uh skinnamarink is in effect an abstract painting um, mm-hmm. it has, which I, I don't love abstract art and I fucking love abstract art. There is so much room for interpretation. No, you're not latching onto a person or a subject the way you would in a, a traditional, uh, more established school of painting. Uh, you're latching onto a feeling you're latching onto, uh, an emotion that something not traditional arises in you. Um, Skinnamarink is an amalgamation of bits that make you feel something that a traditional movie wouldn't. I don't think a movie could leave me as haunted as I was after that uh, in the same format. Um, There is, in my opinion, uh, Beauty and the Disorganized, and I think Skinnamarink is that. It's complicated. It is messy. It is, at points, unable to be processed. Me, me, me. Yes, also like Pratt. Emphasis on unable to be processed. (laughs) Um, Enigma. By some. Uh, But I think that this has has a place. I think that this discussion is proof of that. Bryce and I see differently, but I think that while there are certainly going to be people who have similar takeaways to Bryce, there are people out there who are going to absolutely love this movie. I can definitely agree with that. In... It's it's uniqueness. It it is something else. It is something else. That's kind of what I was saying too. Is it's gonna have to find its niche, 
with a, a specific group of very people specific who are group going of people. to yeah. love it that much. I wish that it had more of a chance because we're not really going to have a chance to know if a big general audience would love it that much. We'll never know, I don't this think. This was not playing at our local AMC, for example. Right. It was showing at the local indie privately owned theater that only film buffs go to anyways. I can see both sides of the, the argument here. I could see either one being the actual case. I'm, I feel a little bit more hopeful towards what Wyatt was say, saying, even just because of what I saw on the faces of the other moviegoers who were with us tonight, that I don't think anybody in that room, and this might be a, a, a bold claim, I don't think really anybody else in that room didn't have something to latch on to about the movie. So I think that that's, for me, enough of a claim to say, yeah, I think a lot of people could find something in this to take away. Absolutely, yeah. And and don't don't misinterpret me as like preying on this movie's downfall by any means. I think this is one of the most impressive low-budget movies I've ever seen. What it does with, it, with its $15,000 budget is honestly incredible. And I do really think that this is a well-made movie, and I think it deserves to not only make its money back, to but to be successful. I think if it can find sort of that cult classic reputation that Brett mentioned, I would love that for it. I don't see a world where it becomes a mainstay in contemporary horror conversation. I just don't think it's doing enough plot-wise, character-wise to warrant that. And I think a lot of people are going to be scared off by it, not because it's a scary movie, but because it's a weird movie. But... I really hope it does well. I I am amazed at how successful this movie is with what it's trying to do. And yeah, I, I'm very happy to have seen this. Um, this guy's got his panties in a bunch because we outed him as the Sminkamanink. We found him I out. would argue I outed myself <laughs> as the Sminkamanink. No, I don't remember <laughs> it happening that way, even a little bit. You're wrong. Uh, we'll see in the final edit here, which I'm giving you the power to do, so... <laughs> If uh, if you're hearing this, it's entirely possible that Brett outed me as the what's this movie called? Skinamarink. I don't even know. We will not say Skinamarink at any point in this household for the next however long we talk about this. It will certainly take on many a different moniker. I will be tucking you in every night before bed by going. It's time for bed. I will, in turn, uh, move out. <laughs> and with that... Uh, uh, is there anything else that you guys want to talk about? Anything specific? I'll pose a hypothetical before we leave. Please. You say this movie lacks characters and subjects to latch onto. Does a movie need characters and subjects to latch onto? That's all I gotta say. I would say to make it something that truly affects me emotionally yes not to make it a good time i think there are plenty of movies that are sort of aimless that i can enjoy mm. quite a lot oh man i'm glad that you said in that in fact a lot of my favorite movies are very aimless but most of them still have some something there to latch on to whether it's ambiguous characters that are going through a compelling plot or 
very compelling characters, such as in Licorice Pizza, who are just kind of meandering along in their lives, and we're just there along for the ride. I think the only thing to latch onto here is just sort of the feeling that it gives you, and I think that's fair, but for me personally, I think it, it takes a notch off of its success. Follow-up question, uh, unrelated but related in a sense. Do you enjoy poetry as a form of media? Uh, it's often... This is going to sound a little bit silly coming from me, the most pretentious man in the world. It's a little bit too in the air for me. God, I, I'm going to reach over there and punch you in the face <laughs> right now. I have nailed it. The niche for this movie is people who enjoy poetry and all of its cheesy goodness and people who like abstract art. I guarantee you there is a 100% the Venn diagram for those three things. Those three circles are one whole circle. If you enjoy both of those things, I am beyond certain, without a reasonable doubt, you will enjoy Skinnamarink. If you fall into one of those or any of those three categories and you check out this movie, please let us know how you feel about it. Bryce, quickly, um, regarding your point about the aimlessness that I creamed over a little bit whenever you mentioned, it's because I've been looking for any amount of reason that I haven't been able to find until now to talk about Vice's film Climax because Climax is a relative comparison that doesn't have too many similarities but I was thinking a lot about through this movie because it is aimless in the same way that Skinnamarink is and it just has an overarching theme and some fucking ridiculousness there's not much more to say than it uh Climax, which again, we won't talk about long. It's a completely different movie, but it is a movie that I left with a real haunting, bordering psychosis feeling that I, I, I am not confident that another movie will ever give me. I think if Skinnamarink was shooting for any kind of long lasting feeling to leave the audience with, it was something akin to that. And Climax did it more for me then Skinnamarink did it. I, I thought you were going to argue that it's the same thing, so why do I like Climax but not like this? But I think your point is absolutely correct. It is the same experience. I, I think, just like you said, this is just doing it to a sort of lesser extent, which is not to say that it's not good. I think it's very good, but I think you're absolutely right. I for think that's some, an excellent point. For some context, I'm imagining most people aren't familiar with Climax. It is a movie that follows a dance troupe that all end up on an accidental LSD trip and a lot of craziness beyond human conception. Ensues. The night turns to shit. Yeah, I highly suggest it, but it's, it's not an for the faint of heart. It's an incredible, incredible movie. Not for but, the faint of heart yeah. at all. Uh, but yeah, that's a whole different episode. If you liked if you didn't like Schmackinkadink, let us know on all of our socials. I love you. Sleep now. I wanted you to say what our socials were. <laughs> our socials are uh, Lasso the Moon Pod on both Instagram, uh, Twitter, and TikTok. We'll follow see. Follow us on TikTok. If you don't follow us, we will send the Skinky McKink after you, and he'll put a knife in your eye. We'll see about the TikTok. We're also theorizing potential unedited YouTube videos. Uh, we're still experimenting with the video side of things. Uh, so 
if you're watching us on video, hello, uh, this worked out. If you're just hearing this, if you haven't seen our pretty faces, uh, we're still figuring it Follow out. Follow on Instagram. Follow us on Instagram. <sighs> yeah, most of our, our posts go up on Instagram. That's our primary social media. Give us a follow there. Would love it if you could share this podcast with someone that you think would enjoy it. Perhaps an abstract art enjoyer. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps a poet. Perhaps, perhaps a either of poetry those hater like we have amongst our ranks. Hey, I still like poetry. I'm just not smart enough to enjoy it. He said, it's too up in the air. This <laughs> dude flipped off Robert Frost's grave. Uh, I also danced on it, but again, that's not for here. Um, there. If you could leave us a rate on whatever streaming platform you're listening to us on, that would be a huge help. Thank you so much for listening. If you made it this far, I love you very much. I love you a little bit more. I love you more than Skinamarink. The three of us would lasso the moon for you. We hope you would do the same for us. Good night. We love you. Good night. Love you. Bye. I love you. I love you.